complementary and alternative therapies. You will hear from three practitioners who talk about the philosophy behind the therapies they use and the techniques involved, punctuated with a variety of opinions collected at an alternative health fair. First, Calder Bendel, a herbalist, talks about his work both in the NHS and in private practice. I suppose I hold true some of the basic tenets about holistic medicine in terms of treating a person rather than a named condition. So that different people with the same named condition will get different approaches to treatment. A belief that the body can get itself better and that I'm actually helping it along those lines rather than making it do something with an enforced kind of chemical or physical action. So, for example, if somebody's got a bacterial infection, if they would see a doctor, the doctor would give them something like antibiotics to kill the bug. I'd give them something to increase the efficiency of their immune system, increase white blood cell count, etc. So that the body's actually doing it itself. And by that mechanism actually being a bit more specific in the long run about what it's tackling... When somebody comes to see me for the first time, I talk to them, introduce myself and, and whatever. I take a full case history, which is very much like somebody may be asked upon admission to hospital. So I'll talk about what's actually going on with their presenting complaint, what makes it better, what makes it worse. But trying to get through a standard set of questions, just a background to how their body is functioning in all sorts of places and all sorts of levels. I see people for the first consultation for about an hour, Subsequently, I'll see them for about half an hour. That actually gives me space to begin to contact them as an individual, I suppose, and to maybe make space for finding out what's going on emotionally or whatever in the background of things as well, which may be important for some people and not important for others. At the end of that time, I'll make up a medicine for them. I keep a repertoire of about just over 100 herbs in tincture form, Tincture is a liquid form of medicine. In the prescriptions that I give, they'll probably have about five different herbs. And giving them in liquid form means I can mix a convenient mixture for people to take. I suppose always I'm doing a kind of diagnostic appraisal of somebody on two levels. One is a sort of physiological angle, or maybe a pathological angle. I'm looking at somebody saying, what's actually going wrong with this person? What can I do to nudge their physiology back onto line and make it work properly? So I'm working very much in a kind of, sort of Western science analytical mode. When I've got that far, I come up with a range of herbs. It might be one thing is applicable to that, in which case it's straightforward. But it may be 20 different things or different combinations. And then as a kind of artistic appraisal, I think, all oh, right, this person fits with that herb, and it's completely subjective. I'm a completely the opposite end doing something like herbal medicine, more so than maybe somebody doing homeopathy or something else, in that... There's always a do-it-yourself element of herbal medicine. There's a lot of popular books you can go out and read one and say, hey, daisies, dandelion, and you can pick it off your lawn. I'm governed by a certain set of regulations in terms of medicines that I can give out, especially the dodgy ones, because some of the things I do use are, are actually deadly, given in the right amounts. But the other side, going back to the thing about it being a kind of self-help medicine as well, one thing is I don't think you can stop it in terms of people having free access to things that are growing in the countryside or their own gardens. And two, I don't think there should be. I kind of come from some sort of anarchist politics. I said, well, if people want to take it, they can take it, basically. What I do is I use Reiki to help myself. 
I was introduced to it about four years ago and I had actually been through quite a bit of trauma and I was feeling about ten years older than what I should have been at the time and I was introduced to Reiki and what Reiki does is it really renews your energy you actually go to a seminar where you will have Reiki attunements and these attunements literally attune you to the universal life force it's rather like a radio that hasn't been tuned in and a good Reiki master will tune you right into the station so that the universal life force will come through clearly. Kath Ryan is a nurse working in an NHS hospital. She describes how she uses aromatherapy massage with her patients. I used to see a lot of patients and, you know, you'd be giving them painkillers after theatre and a lot of them themselves would be asking if you've got anything else. I don't really want painkillers. They make me feel ill, they get me constipated, make me feel nauseated. Is there nothing else? And I began to have a look around to see what else was available and I stumbled across aromatherapy and got hooked and I found it very, very fascinating because a lot of people just associate aromatherapy with massage and a pleasurable experience. But in actual fact, when you actually look down into aromatherapy, the oils are a massive complex chemicals which actually respond in the body, helping with healing, pain relief, antiemetic properties. So there's like a vast array around us in a natural pharmacy that we could be utilising to help with general well-being. A lot of it is anxiety prior to going to theatre, so we sort of help to calm and relax the patients. Some patients you'll find, because they're so anxious, will have a raised blood pressure. So obviously the massage and a combination of certain oils will help reduce the blood pressure and also give them a calming effect so that they go to theatre a lot happier. And also you find that then they seem to have a lot less pain following theatre and need less analgesic. I tend to use the same mix as the preoperative medication for the massage that I use. I obviously do a detailed history on each patient first just to ensure that there is nothing that I would be doing that could cause them further problems, that they'd have no allergies, that they're on no medication for serious heart problems, things like that. You know, you really look into it. And obviously you need to know the possible side effects of the oils that you're using so that if somebody said, oh, you know, I've got really low blood pressure, for example, you would have to be careful that you obviously didn't do something that would make that even lower because too low is obviously uh, as bad as having one that's too high so you you need to make sure that it'll be a a balance and a calming effect on the people. Doctors believe that maybe 80% of the people they see at a general practice surgery are suffering from stress-related problems and because when you practice transcendental meditation although it's purely a mental technique the body is profoundly affected It's been shown that in 15 or 20 minutes practice of TM, you get a state of rest which is uniquely different and deeper than sleep. David Britton is a former GP who has moved into homeopathy and now practices privately. He begins by talking about his homeopathic work and then goes on to explain how he uses dowsing as a means of diagnosis. Homeopathy has developed over the last 100 years or so and the idea behind it was that when it's in tiny, tiny dose, it actually stimulates a response to that illness and puts it right. And being such a tiny dose, it's completely harmless to the patient. The idea is that it works not on a chemical level, but on a sort of um, vibrational level, more on the electromagnetism sort of side of the spectrum. 
everything has its own energy. It's an energy pattern. And if you get the right energy pattern, you can have an effect on an illness. It's just in orthodox homeopathy, one trains to learn those particular patterns of illness. So with practice, with seeing patients, and over the years you can recognize when somebody fits into a certain, what they call a drug picture, and you can work out a constitutional remedy for them so that it will lift their energy. And some of the remedies are very wide range, broad spectrum, and they would be able to treat you generally. They'd be used for all kinds of illnesses. You can make homeopathic remedies not by the old-fashioned way of dilution and shaking and dilution and shaking, but by using a little electronic device which actually imprints the tablets with the frequency of the, of the remedy. And I've got one, of that's how I, I practice. I've got a little machine that you, you twiddle knobs, and if you want to make the equivalent of arnica, for instance, you would dial in 8687. That is a sort of the understood frequency. And it works in exactly the same way. I'm not sure if anybody really knows how dowsing works, but the fact is that it does, and dowsing is completely accepted in the field of finding water. And a skilled dowser will be more effective than any kind of expensive machinery that you can buy. It works also in the field of human health. The water diviner has to have the intention of finding water. With medical dowsing, you have the intention of asking the questions as if you were phoning them up, there is a yes or a no, and for a yes, you'd get a little pull. The dowsing diagnoses and also helps you to find exactly the right frequency in the homeopathic remedy that is appropriate for that person. So it actually gets rid of the hit and miss thing. This is why I like it so much, because you could talk, which is the classical way of homeopathy, you can talk for a long time and come up with a remedy that feels right, but you've spent a long time getting there and you may miss things, especially things like toxins and deeply unconscious traumas, which the person doesn't even remember. When I first came across this, I had a big tongue in my cheek and I couldn't accept it, but with practice, it is a very, very accurate way of analysing somebody's problem. So you analyse the problem, you find out what the underlying cause is, and very often that in itself is enough to help the patient begin to help themselves because they, they gain an awareness of the problem. When I first started, I got a lot of false readings, a lot of no's when it should have been yes and, and vice versa. So you have to practice. Some people are naturals and some people can't do it. But if you believe you can, I think you can. It's like learning an instrument. You know, when you first learn the violin, for instance, you're going to get lots of bum notes. It'll be years before you, you play it properly. Calder Bendel, Kath Ryan and David Britton now talk about the relationship of the work they do to the NHS. Calder, a herbalist, compares his one day a week in an NHS general practice to his private practice. When I began work, I think, one, I was unconfident and wouldn't have had much nerve to kind of engage with the orthodox profession very much. But secondly, they wouldn't have been very interested in me only ten years ago. And now I'm at a position where I work a couple of sessions a week within an NHS practice. I've got a colleague who's an acupuncturist who does a similar thing within another practice in Sheffield. 
And there are a number of differences. Some I find quite hard to voice. It's something I'm still kind of learning, I think. I've only been working in the NHS practice for a year. The patients in the NHS practice hate my medicines. That's almost universal. They really hate the taste. And that's kind of an interesting thing that just hasn't happened with people who are paying for the service. Paying patients come back now and again and say, oh, it tastes a bit rough. But I've had sort of big men with tattoos sort of slamming the bottles down on the counter at the NHS practice, saying it's bloody stuff, and threatening to hit me. In terms of the work I do privately, I'd say that I see patients across the board, but the core of my practice is middle-aged, working-class women, and that's working-class in employment or husbands in employment rather than unemployed. And that's been kind of interesting. So I've got an idea about where I work there. When I work in the NHS, there's a high proportion of unemployed people there. I'd imagine about 80% of the prescriptions I write are free. They're not charged for, at least not directly to the recipient. I write a prescription. It gets signed by a doctor. We fax the prescriptions through. We had some problems with local chemists not wanting to stock the stuff. I think as much for space and storage reasons as anything else, but also maybe problems with dealing with it. We found a pharmacist who was amenable, who's been doing the job long enough that he actually remembers doing some of these things before. And it's actually made his job interesting, because as he expresses it, pharmacy in a chemist shop's got quite boring in terms of just counting out pills. I see patients there for 40 minutes for a new consultation, 20 minutes follow-up, which sometimes is completely adequate, but sometimes it's not possible for me to do the job as well as I could here. It varies with what people come with. I mean, sometimes something's very straightforward and just directly physical, but I'm seeing quite a lot of people that have got social problems and emotional problems in the background of what's going on with their body. Having said that, I get long, a lot longer than the doctors, usually a lot for an appointment, which means I get a lot of stories coming out to me which wouldn't normally get airing. And that's actually in common with my work here and in the NHS, in that I get a lot of stories told to me, people saying, well, I, I don't know if this really relates to my bad knee, but I haven't told anybody this for 30 years. So somewhere along the line, that's a kind of healing along the way as well. Kath describes how she combines her aromatherapy work with her conventional NHS work. It wasn't that difficult to introduce it because there was a lot of interesting complementary therapies within nursing itself from the Royal College of Nursing. There was a lot of support there. Working in the ward environment, it was the practicalities that were more of a problem and the financing of it. Well, we're trying to raise funds for the hospital in general for refurbishment and various other aspects of the building. Various companies were offering forms of sponsorship for various parts of the hospital. And one of the companies, TSB, offered sponsorship for something that was not normally found within the NHS and that wouldn't be funded by them, but would be of benefit to the patients and would involve a research project. So we just fitted into that category very nicely with the aromatherapy, put in a bid and actually won funding for three years from the TSB. The consultants, I must say, were absolutely brilliant. 
very supportive. There was the odd one that made a joke, oh, nothing happens by smells. But once I'd sort of convinced them that it was more than a smell, that this was actually a natural pharmacy and had, you know, very powerful chemical compounds that we were using, they were sort of a bit more open-minded. And until I was actually given time to do it, the time I used to do the aromatherapy tended to be my own time anyway. And it was sort of like I gave the time willingly to prove its value. And then as people got more interested in it, and the anaesthetists were the first really to catch on how beneficial, and they will still come to me and say, oh, Kath, this patient's got a high blood pressure. Can you do anything, you know, so we don't have to cancel her? So... I used to say, right, okay, and I'd work it into my schedule for the day so that I didn't neglect any other parts of my duties as a nurse, that all of my patient care came first, and then the aromatherapy always had to be sort of like second. Quite difficult juggling it all together, but it can be done. David left the NHS to become a private homeopathic therapist. He explains why. I went to Africa after medical school for a bit, and then I did the GP training, which is another three years. And I went and worked in Australia for a year, doing the doctor's deputising service, being driven around like a GP in Sydney. And then I came back and did ten years in general practice. And then I was beginning to... I knew for a long time that there was something better out there. So then I went and did the iridology, and from the iridology I met somebody who pointed me in the direction to homeopathy, and I did a six-month course for GPs. So I got six months out of general practice at the Royal London Homeopathic Hospital. So it was quite an intensive course and we worked with GPs that had studied homeopathy and they were using it in practice and we saw patients in the wards. During that time I realised and the idea of going there to begin with was that I should take it back into general practice but I realised how time-consuming it was and I, in that six months, I realised how effective homeopathy is. So I made the change and realised that I could slow down and enjoy life a lot more. It's more interesting than life ever used to be when I was, <laughs> when I was in general practice. I mean, I'm glad I did the medical training because you can see how the, the anatomy and the physiology all work in and the relevance of it all. You can understand some of the medications that people are on. I just regret a little bit that I stayed in it so long. I remember in general practice that you did a lot of good by just listening to people. And it was always a shame when there were two or three people that needed time to be confronted with a waiting room full of angry, stressed people. So I think it could be wonderfully useful in general practice if the doctor that was doing it was allowed to have much more time to run a sort of integrated homeopathic practice so he'd see his patients in the normal way and he would be allowed time to do his other patients but it would be hard to fit in because the other doctors would have to see more patients and they wouldn't like you very much. But should complementary and alternative therapies be freely available on the NHS? I'd quite like to work for the NHS one day doing Reiki, because otherwise it's just rich people who can afford it. I was going to try something, but I haven't got £100 on me today, so I don't bother. 
it's a shame to take money off people who are in the national health anyway. You know, why should they pay more? Because they want to try some other technique. It would be just brilliant, I think, and doctors would be able to spend more time with patients that they've spent all those years in medical school learning about. I would love it if, I, if people didn't have to pay and I wouldn't have any worry about calling people back. I'm afraid sometimes I don't call people back because I'm worried that, I mean, this, this might sound ridiculous, but I'm sometimes worried that they're worried about their pockets, but that's not, I mean, it really, it should be up to them. I think the more complementary medicine we get into general practice, the happier doctors will be because they'll have a lot of weight taken off them. And yet it's, it's resisted, it's still resisted. Things are gradually changing because we've got counsellors coming into general practice and doing fantastic work. And now there are osteopaths which are accepted. But the problem is with a lot of things, for instance, if I was to go and work in a general practice, I'd have to do it all privately, I'd have to pay for the room and get patients to pay me. I mean, I would love it if I could see people on the national health using my way and my approach. I feel as if that's not just round the corner at the moment. I really feel that within the NHS we should be looking at this and utilising it because it is quite a cheap form of medication compared to a lot of the big drugs. There's a lot less side effects, I would say, less severe side effects with them. And I think that if everybody sort of abandons the ship and goes private, that people won't do the research, they won't look at it, they won't find the benefits. And it's for all of the patients involved that you do this and you think to yourself, well, no, I'm needed to do this here and now. And I'm really enjoying it. I mean, I wish I could do it full-time, obviously, but within the NHS because I think there's an awful lot there that we need to look at and learn and discover again. Calder holds a different view. If somebody has to pay for the medicine, they're more likely to get better, faster. I've got problems with this in terms of my own politics and where I come from, and it's something I fought against, I think, for a long time, in terms of contradictions of where I came from and my own motivations, and somehow ending up in private medicine. And when I first went to work, I spent a lot of time especially pensioners and people on the dole, giving free consultations and giving medicine, often below cost price. And partly I think I was being abused, because there were some people who were unemployed and were on the dole, but I found they had big savings and they'd drive up in a big jag or something. But partly I began to realise some sort of function in people actually valuing the time and paying for it. I had the same sort of thing when I was teaching an evening class for the WEA, Paying for something is one measure of commitment and it's something about valuing people's time, both that they give to it and that I give to them. And I certainly get people within the NHS that say, yeah, I want to see her, I don't want any of this stuff. Maybe a kind of complete thing or a block against orthodox medicine. And if that's useful to me, I can use it as a kind of energy in terms of commitment to me and get themselves better. But overall, that relationship's quite clear, I think. Kath gives her views as an aromatherapist of evidence of the effectiveness of complementary and alternative therapies. We're going to be doing a randomised control trial 
and we'll be looking at four specific groups those that have massage with aromatherapy those that just have massage those that just inhale the oils and um, the general control where they have just a lecture you sort of talk to them and say oh well you know your usual preamble before theatre check if they've got any anxieties or worries and then monitor all groups checking blood pressure on them various blood levels and blood glucose levels as well and seeing what the response in each group is and seeing whether in actual fact the ones with the aromatherapy do come out better or whether it's just the general comforting of the person that actually helps so we want to sort of really sort of look at it and find out what it is that makes such a difference we need to prove the value of aromatherapy by doing the research projects and obviously you have to go through your medical ethics committee you have to get permission from the medicine control agency because essential oils are not a licensed drug and to do a trial you need drugs to be licensed so you have to get exemption certificates for that i have to have a doctor to say he will back the trial because they will only give permission to the doctor to do the trial not the nurse so it's all sort of stumbling blocks like that that you encounter well we will do a lot of actual physical recordings and we will have a questionnaire for the patients as well so that they can tell us how their personal experience was and we can match that in with the results that we have from blood and obviously blood pressure readings and stuff like that and so to see you know what we come up with David left the NHS to practice homeopathy. I'm sort of unscientific about my evaluation. People come back and tell me they're better or phone up or it's just an ongoing thing and you can get a sense of if people are getting better or not. I think if people didn't get better, I would have gone straight back to orthodox medicine. There are definitely trials that have been done. It's always very difficult to do homeopathy trials because in homeopathy you're taking every individual and everybody's different, so they wouldn't all get the same treatment. I can think of one which was done with osteoarthritis sufferers, and it was a double-blind trial that showed that homeopathy was statistically effective, and the idea was that the homeopathic doctor worked out the remedy for each person's particular arthritis, And some of those patients were given homeopathy and some of them were given just aspirin. And neither the doctor or the patient knew which one was having homeopathy and which were having aspirins. And there was a definite statistical improvement with homeopathy over the people on the placebo. And finally, Calder, a herbalist. I've always evaluated my own work privately. I've been aware that I'm in a position where... I don't have a boss or an overseer and I'm wary of people in positions like that kidding themselves and actually doing a good job when maybe they're not. And sometimes that can actually happen with a patient. They can come back and say, oh, great. They can have a nice, meaningful dialogue with you and go out the room feeling great, but the physiological thing hasn't got that much better. So all the time I've been practising, I've always pulled out my notes and done some form of assessment about how well I'm actually doing. And as I've gone on, I suppose I've learned a bit more about audit and a bit more about more systemised ways of going about that. In the NHS practice, there's an outside consultant who's kind of coming in to check over what I'm doing. 
there's a doctor and another person who works in the practice overseeing what I do, and all my work there is audited. I'm used to getting to a point on my notes where I say, 100% better, discharged. And because I've said to them, I want you back in three weeks' time, I get to that position where I can write they've got better, or they haven't, in which case I carry on seeing them, or refer them on somewhere else. But you don't see recovered written on NHS notes. There's never any kind of reflection that people have actually got better. Certainly there's a callback when people have had blood tests or they say, oh, I want to see you in a month and just check how you're going. But you don't see written down, you know, healed over, better, apart from things like wounds and, and cuts and things like that where they've gone to see nurses. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.